Hi, I'm Chris Sprouse, Speaker of the Florida House and former prosecutor. From policy briefs to white papers, court cases to brutal police records, no matter my role, reading has been a central part of my mission to defend American values. But this isn't just my job. Reading books is a personal passion, and getting to know the authors behind the ideas on the page is one of my favorite pastimes. The Red, White, and Blue podcast is now in session. Welcome back, listeners. Today, we'll be talking with best-selling author Gilbert King about his book, Devil in the Grove, a tragic historical account of Jim Crow-era Florida that centers on four black young men who were falsely accused of a crime and the horrible miscarriage of justice that followed. I read this book back in 2016, shortly before our 2017 legislative session in Florida, where we had hearings on the Groveland Four and for the first time sought to have justice for these men and their families. Gilbert King has written about U.S. Supreme Court history and civil rights for the New York Times, Washington Post, and The Atlantic. His New York Times bestseller, Devil in the Grove, earned him the Pulitzer Prize for general nonfiction in 2013. He's also the author of The Execution of Willie Francis and, most recently, Beneath a Ruthless Sun. I got to sit down with Gilbert to talk about his book, Devil in the Grove, a story of Southern injustice, racial prejudice, and the uphill struggle for civil rights, as well as the rise of Justice Thurgood Marshall. Join us now for a conversation about tragedy, prejudice, and the long road to justice. Well, Gilbert, thanks so much for being with me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I, I can't tell you how excited I am to talk to you again about this book. Uh, obviously, Pulitzer Prize, uh, such, such a compelling story. But before we get into the details, you know, tell me why you wanted to tell this story uh, in 2012. Why did you decide to write about it? And, and what did it mean to you at the time? You know, it's interesting. I was I was working on a case in Louisiana, and I was going through some records. Um, for It was a death penalty case in 1946. And I was going through some records, and I saw that Thurgood Marshall had written the letters to the defense attorneys trying to tell them how to run the case, even though he wasn't representing them. And I remember reading this going, what is Thurgood Marshall doing? Like, I, you know, I, I know he's first African-American Supreme Court justice, and then he's, you know, Brown versus Board. He does all this important civil rights litigation. But uh, what's he doing involved with these death penalty cases in these small towns? And, and I started looking into it. And uh, I said, you know, when I get back to the East Coast, I'm going to go through his records and just see, because I was just really curious what he was doing. And I found this one letter it was written from like Orlando in 1949. And the letter was basically a, one of Thurgood's lawyers. He was writing to Thurgood and he says, Thurgood, we need help down here. This is the most dangerous place we've ever been. We are being threatened constantly. There's a hurricane coming. We're terrified. We need reinforcements. We need the FBI. Please help us. I remember thinking, like, what is going on in Florida that's so desperate? And that's when I found the Groveland story. They were, he was one of the lawyers working on the Groveland story with Thurgood Marshall. And, and they were just talking about how dangerous it was and how the deputies and the sheriffs were chasing him around town. And it was just terrifying for them. And so I started looking into this case and I couldn't believe that I'd never heard of it before. You know, I've done a lot of civil rights, you know, investigations and studies. And this to me was a lot like the Scottsboro Boys case, which was, you know, Alabama in 1931. Like, how is a case in Florida in the late 1940s just off my radar? And so I'm looking into it. I'm seeing like, the sheriff doesn't, doesn't like the Supreme Court decision, goes out and tries to execute the two prisoners. I, I couldn't believe what I was reading. I was like, how do I not know this? I'm looking through Thurgood Marshall's biographies, and there's only like a paragraph or two about this case, too. It's just they, they, they go to the straight civil rights cases, and then, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court stuff. 
they weren't interested in the criminal cases in his career. And that's the stuff I was interested in. So that's how it came on my radar. You know, it's this uh, unbelievable story of of injustice. Obviously, it's all it's all true story. You discover it. You write this book, which reads like a like a crime thriller. But but in the book, you you do a really good job in the beginning of sort of setting the stage of what the country, but specifically what Florida was like in these in these rural counties in the '40s and '50s. Which you know, even for somebody like me who's grown up in Florida, you know, it's probably not an era in which you were really familiar with what's happening in the state during that period of time. So set set the table a little bit for us about Florida in the '40s and '50s in Lake County. Yeah, and, and it's it's a pretty common theme. And one of the things that you know I write about in my book is that a lot of the stuff that was happening in Florida was kind of off the radar in the national consciousness. So, you know, people didn't really know what was happening at the at the like that pre-civil rights era, you know, the 40s and 50s leading up to the 1960s civil rights. Um, there was a lot of coverage of these kind of atrocities and racial stories, but the ones that were happening in Florida, for some reason, didn't get the kind of attention that the ones that happened in the traditional like cotton belt states, the ones that we think about when we think of civil rights and, and the South. Florida was like south of the South. So, you know, something happened in Florida. They were like, well, that's not really part of the civil rights. That's, you know, Florida's Florida. It's not really. And so you'd see these unbelievable stories, like similar to like what Emmett Till went through in the 1950s. You know, this kid was lynched for like whistling at a woman in Mississippi. Um, you know, I, I included in Devil in the Grove a story like that that happened in Florida. Thurgood Marshall's working with Harry T. Moore to try and bring justice to this, and they can't get the DOJ interested in it. And so there, there's all these kind of stories that we are familiar with in, in you know, American culture, sort of like to kill a mockingbird type stories. But the real ones that were happening in Florida, nobody knows about. And that was what was really impressive to me is just to find out, like, how many of these kind of stories existed in Florida that just people were unaware of. And I re- I think the real reason of it is it's not just the South of the South thing, but in general, in, in, a, in, the, in the rest of the country, that pre-civil rights area, era, you know, the 40s and 50s leading up to the 1960s, it was a very violent uh, time. And I think those don't really fit the kind of, um, you know, narrative that we want to think of as Americans, because you're seeing a lot of lynchings, you're seeing a lot of um, you know, racial injustice, and it was before the civil rights movement, and it's not—it's not really easy to swallow, in a lot of ways. I think sometimes in America we have, um, you know, this sort of narrative that that gets started where, all right, we had the original sin of slavery, and then Abe Lincoln came along and fixed that, Emancipation Proclamation, and then, you know, we had a hundred years that wasn't so great, but then Martin Luther King came along. Well, what happened in those hundred years? that, you know, between Reconstruction and the 1960s. And a lot of it is just really racial terrorism and, and, and a country trying to come to terms with, um, you know, the end of slavery. And it, it takes a long, long time. And, and I think Florida w- was really no different than a lot of other states. The only difference I see is that people were just not aware of it at the time. That a lot of things that were happening, like under the radar in Florida at the time. It's so, it's so true when you talk about that era, you know, here you are, it's now post-World War II. Right, so the baby boom has begun. You know, you know, sort of America's in a renewal. But to your point, you know, parts of the country are are not feeling that, are not are not being in a renewal. You know, you, you talk about terrorism as well, and you know, in the book, you talk a lot about the relationship between the Ku Klux Klan in the South and in Florida, with law enforcement and really with sort of the the people in the community who would be the the power brokers, whether it's the business leaders or political leaders. So. You know, lay that out for us a little bit about the relationship between the Ku Klux Klan, the leaders and law enforcement in the community, and how that intersected with Thurgood Marshall and the folks who've come down to Florida to fight racial injustice. 
Yeah, sure. And this was the, the part that really surprised me too, because you know, usually when you start investigating this, I'm I'm getting into like the whole citrus business. All right. And I'm a New Yorker. All right. You know, I don't know anything about citrus. You know, I, I really have to start from like ground zero. You know, I don't even know what, what kind of oranges there are. And now I'm like learning all about this. And my original assumption was like, all right, in these kind of cases, you're just going to follow the money. And that was sort of my, what was my guiding principle. And, you know, I'm looking at the citrus barons and, and, and the people that put Sheriff Willis McCall into place. And I'm, I'm starting to think, you know, all right, these are the, these are the power. This is, this is the power source in Lake County. And, um, and what I began to realize as, as I was investigating this and reading all the FBI reports was that at some point, and this was really, really foreign to me, and I found it really fascinating, Sheriff Willis McCall was basically put into power by these citrus barons. You know, he was a fruit inspector and they liked him. They felt like he was a good law and order guy. He could sort of control the labor in Lake County, which is sort of what you wanted in the sheriff, you know, powerful, protect the business interests. But then once this, once this, like once the National Guard came into Groveland, when, they, when, they, when the Klan rolled in after these accusations of, of sexual assault, they started burning down the black homes. And, and when that happened, there, there became a lot of, you know, media attention and um, the Klan rolled into Lake County by the hundreds. I think it was four or 500 Klansmen came in and started burning down these houses. And as I was looking through the FBI reports, I was seeing some of the most powerful people in Lake County, you know, state representatives, you know, multi-millionaire businessmen, and they were being threatened by the Klan. The Klan was saying, if you talk to the FBI, about what's happening down here, we will burn down every business you own. And these, you know, some of them were like state legislators and they were getting threatened by the Klan. And I, at that point, I began to realize once Sheriff McCall was elected, his power base was no longer those citrus barons, it was the electorate. And it's a very rural county. And he, you know, basically ran unopposed most of the time. You know, he ran eight times. Um, and so he was the most powerful person in Lake County. Um, and, and so once he's elected, it's the Klan that really has all the power. And you could feel it and sense it in the interviews that they were doing. Even some of the police chiefs, um, like the Groveland police chief was talking to the FBI agent. And uh, he said, look, I'll tell you what's happening here. And, and, and it's the, you know, he, he blamed law enforcement. He said, but don't tell anybody, I wanna go off the record with here because if they find out that I'm talking to you, they will kill me. Um, and this is the police chief of Groveland and he's just terrified of the Klan. So that to me was just really strange to find out that the money was not the power, it was really the electorate. And it's interesting how that changed from sort of the, you know, you have this this aristocracy of the citrus barons and then to the to the power to the Klan. Interestingly enough, when I got your book the first time, it was given to me by that my then boss, Bernie McCabe, who was the elected head prosecutor, state attorney in Pinellas Pasco County. But his dad was superintendent of schools in Lake County. So Bernie, told, Bernie gave me your book and said, hey, I remember growing up, I was really little and seeing Willis McCall on a horse with a big white hat. And all I knew was that he was mean. And my dad said he was mean and he was just, he was just this bad, you know, mean guy, um, you know, which was interesting. And that's, that's where I ended up getting the book. Um, so l let's kind of rewind. You know, here we are in 2022, go back to the summer of 1949. Um, you know, there's a, a young couple, they break down on the side of the road and this is where they're fighting. They're a young couple, their marriage is in turmoil. And that's where this story begins. So I'm sure you're asked all the time, what's your, what's your story about? What's the book about? What happened to these guys? Give, give our listeners a, a flavor for the story here as it begins on the side of the road in Lake County in the summer of 1949. 
Yeah, that's that's a perfect setup for it because you know that's really how the story begins. Um, you know, it was the summer of 1949. You had a young married couple that were already having like rumors of of that that the husband Willie Paget was was you know abusive or committing domestic violence, and and so the families wanted the two to separate. They thought they were a young couple. Norma Paget was only 17. Willie's a couple of years older. They separate for a few months. They're living in town, but then they decide in July of 49, we're going to go out dancing and they pick up a little bottle of whiskey and they drive up to Claremont and, and, and go to the American Legion Hall for a dance. And it's about one o'clock in the morning and they decide to go get something to eat up near Okahumka. And something happens on the side of the road, car troubles. I, I think, you know, they pulled off to the side of the road and, uh, a couple of um, young African-Americans came along um, to help them move the car and something happened. We're not really too sure, but we think that um, Norma was drinking a bottle of whiskey and, and because they were pushing the car, she offered him some and her husband did not like that, like sharing a bottle with a couple of black men. And so a fight started, I think, you know, used a couple of epithets at, at the African-Americans, a fight starts and um, they end up leaving Willie in a ditch and driving away. Well, at that point, Norma and, and her husband, Willie, sort of report this, what, what had happened. And she claims that she was sexually assaulted by four African-Americans. And, uh, and so that's what the process whole starts. That's when the Klan starts rolling into town, starts burning down Black homes. Um, the, the, the National Guard has to come in. And quickly, they arrest four suspects and um, basically put them through the system. And, and it's going to be a month later, the trial is going to start. So things happen really fast down there. Um, they arrest a couple of the suspects, take them down below the courthouse, beat, beat confessions out of them. Um, they pick up a 16-year-old kid who's in a Groveland jail about 25 miles away. He becomes one of the four because they needed four. And uh, Ernest Thomas was another Lake County resident who saw what was happening, saw these houses being burned down. He said, I'm out of here. Uh, went up to the swamps of North uh, Florida. And Sheriff McCall puts together a posse of more than 1,000 men, and they hunt him down, shoot him dead. And that's how the Groveland Four becomes the Groveland Three. And that's how the whole legal process and the trial starts. So those are pretty much the events that put the story into place. I, I think it's an interesting turn of events when, you know, obviously you mentioned Ernest Thomas being tracked into the swamp and killed. Meanwhile, you've got the other three guys, you know, Charles Greenlee, Walter Irvin, Sam Shepard, as you said, being beaten in the jail. There's this scene in the book where this angry mob is coming to the jail demanding, you know, mob justice, you know, bring them out, let us let us do, you know, what we're going to do to them. And McCall says, hey, go away, you know, disperse, etc. It's interesting, there's this national news article that you talk about where it was a national publication, right? And they're, they're basically making Louis, uh, Willis McCall seem like a hero for stopping the mob justice. Of course, he ends up being the anti-hero, the most ultimate villain in the book. But he start he starts off and you're you're kind of thinking, "Oh, this guy's going to be a good guy." Yeah, uh, obviously that, that doesn't happen. So, you know, tell us about that, you know, that article and, and sort of, you know, uh, he was sort of kind of taken with it, right? He really was. And it's funny you talk nobody's ever really asked me about that. I find that part fascinating. Like he starts out the story. I felt a little guilty writing it that way because I'm like, "Oh, he looks like a hero here." But he kind of was. Um yeah, the, the mob shows up there. They want a lynching. And so they want the suspects. And, you know, this is not uncommon. This has happened many times in the South. And, and you know, family members who are, you know, embedded with, with the, the people. And, you know, there's hundreds of them standing outside the, the Lake County Courthouse. They got, you know, axe handles and guns. And they're like, we want them. We want to go up there. And, and Willis McCall actually 
recognized the danger. He had them hidden in his house at the time. And then he moved them out into a field because he was afraid of this, that there was going to be a lynching. And, you know, he starts out the story where he's like, there's not going to be a lynching in this county, not on my watch. And he basically, the New York Times runs a big story about it. It says, fast-talking sheriff present, prevents uh, lynching in Florida. And so he starts the story out like this. And he's saying, oh, law and order, man. And, you know, I think his motivation was like, no, I'm the power here. We're going to do this right. And, you know, I think one of the things he says is like, these boys are going to get a fair trial and then we're going to send them to the electric chair. I mean, so he was already like sort of predicting how it would go. And, 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 he, and he was right. This was really what, what happened in the South after lynching started to sort of die down. There was a more outrage about lynchings after World War II. And what you started to see is um, an increase in the death penalty. And so this, the, the offenses that people used to be lynched for, you know, obviously, if you're African-American and accusations that you had sexually assaulted a white woman, that would be one of them. Um, and, uh, you know, rape was a capital crime back then. So it was sort of a, a transition from lynching to legal lynching, doing it by the electric chair. And so that was what Willis McCall was trying to sell to, the, to his constituents. Like, we're not going to do lynchings here. We'll just send the electric chair. Well, and it seems like the you know local press was, was helpful, too. Right. There's you mentioned that there's a cartoon at the time that's got four electric chairs and it's basically the message is let's hurry up and get on with it. Yeah, pretty much. And, and you know, that was like the day after the, the, this, this, you know, events happened, they still have four electric chairs and, you know, they're calling for blood already. In fact, it's interesting that the, after like this, you know, Orlando Sentinel actually apologized for their coverage of the Groveland case. Um, you know, they had a front page editorial uh, two years ago saying we blew it. And, you know, we were basically doing the prosecution's work and we weren't really covering this the way that we should have been covering it, which I thought was really interesting. And, and that was definitely true. There was a lot of media bias and that came up in the U.S. Supreme Court decision, too. I, w- I want to get to that in a minute so that you, you mentioned the trial begins a month later after they've got these guys in the jail. Who's who's representing them at the trial? Yeah, this is interesting because they have a couple of African-American lawyers from the NAACP uh, that come down. But one of the things that's interesting and. I was thinking about this, you know, if you're familiar with like To Kill a Mockingbird, the, the book or the movie, you know, Atticus Finch, there's this really dramatic moment in the trial where Mayella Yule is kind of like the Norma Paget of that story. And there's this moment where Atticus Finch is cross-examining her and he kind of gets to the truth. And, you know, so I'm looking for that in the trial when I start reading the transcripts. Where's my moment? You know, Thurgood Marshall doesn't come. And, you know, the reason it doesn't come is like, this is reality. Thurgood Marshall was told that there's no way that you black lawyers can stand up in court and question the word of a white woman. That is going to be the fastest way to send your uh, clients to the electric chair. Um, And so Marshall had to hire um, Alex Ackerman, who was, you know, from a big family in Florida, Ackerman Law Firm, still very big. Um, Alex, at that point, he was representing um, some African-Americans who were trying to integrate the University of Florida Law School. So he was like one of the white people that said, yeah, I can do this. I have no reputation in the state anymore anyway. So, but there was a lot of you know, white lawyers that would not take the case because they just were afraid what, what it would mean for their career. And so Thurgood Marshall and his lawyers really needed to get like some white lawyer to get up there and be able to cross-examine you know, Norma Patchett and some of those more thornier witnesses. We fast, you know, fast forward sort of through the case, obviously, um, you know, as it's happening, you know, you, you Thurgood Marshall's there. He's in the Deep South in a town that's run by 
uh, a sheriff who's run by the Ku Klux Klan. And there's this, and I can't remember if it was in the trial, Gilbert, or if it was in the retrial, but there's a scene where there's African-American lawyers who represent the, the, the three who are driving through, I think at the time it's Lake County and then into Orange County. So it's all orange groves, I think, as, as, far, as far as the eye can see. And the Klan is chasing them. Uh, through orange. So talk a little bit about the the risk that these lawyers, I mean, I'm a lawyer. I prosecuted cases for a number of years. Most of the guys I prosecuted, of course, were in chains at the time. Um, but here's these lawyers driving through orange groves where, you know, Disneyland would be today. And they're being tracked by the Ku Klux Klan and, and, and thinking very possibly if they get to us, they're going to kill us. Yeah. And, and the thing about it is like, that was a realistic threat. Like that, this was happening. Like, you know, people were dying in the middle of this case. Um, and so the threat to these lawyers, when they're leaving town, they have a couple of the African-American reporters with them too. And this is like, they just, it's like sundown in Lake County. And, you know, these, the, the defendants have just been acquitted or convicted. Two of them are sentenced to death. 16 year old gets life because he's young and kind of you know, charmed the jury, I think, in a way. Um, and, and Thurgood Marshall said, oh, that's how you know, like, they, the, the jury thought your guy was innocent. They only gave him life. You know, that was one of, one of his common phrases. But yeah, you have, like, these guys come out of there, the, the, the lawyers are like, all right, we lost the case. There's no place to stay in Lake County. There's no hotels that would accommodate Black people. So they have to drive back to Orlando. And they're, they're nervous leaving this courthouse and leaving Lake County. And all of a sudden, they see a couple of cars tailing them behind them. And they're, they're going like 90 miles an hour down 441. They, they drive straight through to Orlando. Um, they go to a Popka and it's really close. It's really dangerous. And they finally, they get to, um, you know, Orlando. And they're, in, you know, the black section of town where the hotel is. And they get out of the car and it's just like this collective sigh, like, Oh my God, they, those chick guys chased us for, you know, 30 miles. Like they were going to kill us. And, you know, they had every right to be afraid because that stuff was happening. Yeah, no doubt. It, you know, after they, uh, the, the convictions, you got, you know, Sam Shepard uh, and, uh, and Walter Irvin who get, you know, the death penalty, as you mentioned, Charles Greenlee, who gets life in prison, you know, they, uh, it gets appealed to Florida Supreme Court, ultimately the United States Supreme Court. In April of 1951, Justice Jackson authors this opinion, reversing it, ordering a retrial. And there's this quote at the end of the opinion that I think is worth talking about. It says that the case presents one of the best examples of one of the worst menaces to American justice. I, I really think that's something. Here you have Justice Jackson, who was the head prosecutor or one of the head prosecutors at the Nuremberg trials of the Nazis saying this case is one of the best of the worst examples of the menaces to American justice, really sort of sets the stage for the retrial that now comes back to Florida with Thurgood Marshall, with that opinion. Does it change, the, does it change that trial? Yeah, I think it really does. And, you know, that, that opinion was really interesting because Marshall appealed it based on, like, change of venue and the way the grand jury was selected. But Justice Jackson was like, all right, yeah, we're doing it on, you know, change of venue and we're doing it on the grand jury selection. But he was like, really, this whole entire case is an abomination of American justice. And, and he, he wanted to just say something a little stronger than what was the issue that they were reversing. And so he got that message across. And you could imagine there was people in Lake County that didn't really like that um, decision. And Willis McCall was probably the most, you know, apparent one. And, and I think with him, he had this implicit bargain with the people of Lake County, his his electorate, which was, you know, they're not going to be a lynching here. We're going to handle this through the courts and there's going to be justice. And then these men are going to the electric chair. And so when the Supreme Court overturns it, 
kind of places Willis McCall in this spot. Like, you know, you kind of promised us justice and now we're not getting it. And uh, and so he decides he's going to go up to Rayford State Prison and pick up the two defendants that are appealing now. Charles, uh, or not Charles Greenlee, the 16 year old, is sitting it out because Marshall told him, look, you can get convicted and sentenced to death this time. Don't don't play around with this. We'll get come back to you later. So Willis McCall goes up to Rayford State Prison, picks up uh, Sam Shepard and um, Walter Irvin, handcuffs them, starts driving them back to Lake County for the retrial the next morning, and uh, takes a little detour in Lake County down a little clay road. And, and uh, the next thing we know, two of the defendants are shot on the side of the road. Um, Sam Shepard was killed instantly, three bullets. Walter Irvin survives, which is like, if he would have died like he should have on the side of that road, Nobody would know about this case. I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you about it. It would just have died in the darkness. Um, but Walter Urban survived the shooting, was shot three times. And his story checked out forensically about how he was shot. Um, and the FBI was investigating this. They found the bullet, the third bullet, that went straight through Walter Urban's neck and ended up in the ground, which backed up his story about cold-blooded murder on the part of the sheriff and the, and the uh, deputy. And so... Now you're really down to one Groveland boy. It's really Walter Irvin is the last man standing. And what do they do? They say, look, you're injured. Uh, we'll give you three weeks to recover, and then we'll take you back to trial. And so that's how the second trial gets started. Well, they, they take him back to trial. They, they convict him. Your point about the FBI investigating, they convict him while the FBI is saying, hey, we think they manufactured this evidence. The forensic evidence we think was totally manufactured. And they convict him anyway uh, you know, of, of, the, of the rape. Right. So, you know, you, you leave that trial and there's really 70 years on a road to, to justice. You know, I say justice, obviously you can never, you never, you know, eliminate what happened to these, these four young men, but 70 years to clear their name. Tell us about how that started. And I'll just say, because you probably won't say this, Gilbert, so I will, but, you know, 2012, you write this book. I believe that it was the writing of this book that reopen this story for America, capture the hearts of so many people across the country who wanted to know more, but also were thirsty for justice and thirsty for someone to come out and say, we're going to clear these men's names. So so tell us about that road. You write the book in 12 and, and sort of how that takes shape. Yeah. And then thank you for saying that. I, I, I It does sometimes come up and there's definitely no doubt that the book is a catalyst, but there's so many people that were involved in this and making it move forward, yourself included. And so I think it's really important. I think one of the most inspiring things to me was that I heard that, you know, in the legislature, they were people were reading the book and they decided to like, well, maybe we should do something about this, maybe a claims bill, something like that. And I remember getting a, a text from somebody, I don't even remember who it was from, but they said, you should get down here. I think this claims bill is gonna pass. I'm like, are you kidding me? And what had happened, I mean, you could probably add to this in, in, a, in a way, but there was like a bipartisan effort to do something, to, to correct this injustice. And I remember showing up you know, at the legislature in Tallahassee, and uh, you know, I was up with the family sitting up in the balcony, and uh, you know, Speaker Corcoran at the time said, um, I think there was some kind of competition about how many co-sponsors between the Democrats and the Republicans. And, and I don't, we don't know what the final count is. Let's just do it now. And all 117 members voted to co-sponsor the bill and it passed unanimously. 
And I, I was sitting up with the with the, the families, and I think they were absolutely blown away by this. They just couldn't imagine something like this happening. Um, and that really started the whole process. You know, now you had the legislature sort of apologizing and recommending pardons, and, and then it gets eventually to the governor's office. Um, and Governor DeSantis, I, you know, I remember there was some buzz leading up to it. I heard like Marco Rubio saying this needs to be addressed. Um, I was getting like little pieces of it right around the 2018 election. And um, Governor DeSantis made some comment along the lines of like, I'm going to look at this when, as soon as I get into office. And, you know, it was, I think, two or three days into his term. And he held a clemency board meeting in Tallahassee. And, you know, it was so fast that we all just figured this is probably just an agenda. They're going to put it on an agenda. But, you know, again, went up there with the families and watched and, and it turned into a hearing. And Norma Paget actually showed up. Um, you know, 70 years later, hadn't talked to anybody about it, showed up and basically was against the pardons. But it was a really dramatic hearing. And it was another one of those situations where the, the, the board voted unanimously on the spot for nothing to um, pardon the Groveland boys. Uh, and so, you know, it was just it, I think everybody just I, to me, it's like one of the great moments in government. Uh, you know, a lot of times you you can look at the past. A lot of states can look at you see these atrocities, especially in this time period in America, um, and it easily gets brushed under the rug and you know sort of nothing to do. But I have to commend the state of Florida for actually saying we want to do something about this. And I cannot tell you how many people I've met through you know on a purely bipartisan effort that we just have to do something, that have, we have to do the right thing. And, and, and th that to me is one of the things that makes me wanna keep coming back to Florida because I see what's possible. Um, a lot of other states just don't even wanna address these kinds of things, but that's what I love about Florida. It's a great moment in government. And uh, it's, a, it's a moment that I think Florida should really be proud of. Well, I appreciate you saying that. We are proud of it. Uh, I'll tell you, you, know, you don't get a lot of moments like that you know, serving in elected office. And at the time I was blessed, you know, Speaker Corcoran, as you mentioned, had made me the judiciary chair. So I got to preside over those committee meetings. And I had gotten a copy of your book, which of course was given to me, as I mentioned by Bernie McCabe. And I got a copy to everyone, every member of the committee, um, you know, before we had the hearing and, and gave them the story. And I think because of that, because they got to read the story and knew the story, they, they were emotionally attached to the idea of being a part of history's justice. And, you know, for us, I got to um, have the opportunity to be, I think, the first, you know, person as the chair of that committee to look at the families and say that we're sorry. And, you know, at the, at the time, it sort of felt very inadequate uh, to look at the families on behalf of the state and the history. Obviously, none of us were there. None of us were part of it. None of our relatives were part of it. But it doesn't matter. It's part of our state's history. And as, as representatives of the state, we got to look at the families and apologize. And as you know, uh, Bobby DeBose had the had the resolution that we passed, as you mentioned, off the House floor. And, you know, the, the last sort of part of that resolution apologizes to the family. Um, it talks about the victims of the Groveland Four and the gross injustices, their abhorrent treatment by the criminal justice system, and that it was a shameful chapter in our state's history. And, uh, you know, that was a really cool moment for us to, to be able to engage with those families and to then, then at the end of that resolution, ask the cabinet to do their duty, which is to look at the case and, and to pardon these young men. And, and uh, I think then, you know, recently in the last year, it actually went back to a trial, trial court in Lake County for, for I think, to, to clear and vacate the arrest. Isn't that right? Right. Uh, you know, there was, wasn't really a path towards exoneration 
just based on you know technicalities and stuff. But I think the state attorney, um, Bill Gladson in Lake County, did an amazing job with this. He got the FDLE report and he's like, uh, there's nothing we can do. Is there any new evidence? Like, where, where can we go? We were having a lot of conversations and he ended up finding ev- new evidence. He actually tracked down the original trial evidence and found it in a box. I had tried for years and he found that the pants that the prosecution held up and said, this is a semen stain and, you know, they never had it tested. And so he was able to do DNA testing on that stain and found that it was not a human stain. And so he said that rises to new evidence. And so, you know, exactly what you described, you know, here's the state attorney and he's like, I got to talk to the families and tell them there's no path. He goes, I got to do a little more than that. And that's when he started working. And we worked over the summer trying to put this together and he did it. And he wrote a really amazing motion um, that in November, the judge said, it's my extreme pleasure and privilege to, you know, basically dismiss all the charges against the Groland boys. But I want to say one thing, Chris, because, you know, I, you mentioned something about being inadequate. Yes, you're obviously, what can you do? You apologize. You're not going to bring back anyone's lives. But I, I want to tell you, you know, having spent so much time with the families, that meant something to them. It really did. It, that was really the start of it. And it's it really encouraged them to go forward. And I just don't want you to to downplay how much that affected the families because they were really grateful. They were living under this narrative that was false for decades. A lot of them stayed in Lake County and they were kind of pariahs because the sheriff kind of controlled the narrative. And so the pardon and the apology was all really, um, really something that meant something to, to these families. They've been living with it for so long. Well, I appreciate you saying that. I, I you know, I always tell members when we go on the house floor, you know, you're, you're part of, you're part of history, but one of my, you know, sort of cherished memories of being on the house floor was with you and the families after we had passed the resolution, everybody had cleared out and you came on the house floor uh, with the families. And we really just got to spend some time together. We took some pictures and things like that. But, but that was that kind of quiet moment afterward where we all got to sit around and talk was, was, was really fascinating. I called, I remember calling my wife that night and saying like, that was a part of Florida's history being there with these families who are the descendants of these young men who suffered such great atrocities in a crim- in the criminal justice system, which I, I feel personally attached to because I worked in the criminal justice system. Um, but it really was a special moment, uh, Gilbert. I don't know if you remember it, but it was... Uh, I remember every moment of it. I remember meeting you and I, I just, you know, I, I can't tell you how impressed I was because honestly, like I can write a book and it goes out there and people read it, but it really takes people being moved by the story and saying, we have to do something about this 70 years later, but we can still do something about it. And I'm not sure it would have happened without your efforts. So I, I just want to thank you for that because it's been something I think about all the time. It, it's got to be cool. You know, you obviously you won the you know, Pulitzer Prize for, you know, for this book, um, which is awesome. And, you know, it's a, it's a huge honor. But you also changed the course of, of history. And I, I got to think that that's up there or surpasses uh, even that honor. Uh, having been part of really kind of you know taking this this great injustice story and and having something good come out of it, having people acknowledge it and and apologize to the families. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, awards. I, I don't, you know, they're great. I, I, there's no doubt about it. But you know, to me, it's like hugging the family members afterwards and and just feeling that. That's that's the thing that I'll always remember. Those are the kind of things that really resonate you know, uh, awards just don't really reach that level. And so, you know, just understanding that there's things that can be done that make a difference uh, in, in, in a state, in, in people's lives. And, and it's just impressive to see it happen. 
I, I want to give before we end. I want to give you, you know, give you a chance to make a plug for another one of your books that took place here in Florida under the ruthless sun, and, uh, <laughs> which also takes place in Lake County. So clearly, an interest in Florida. Uh, you know, what what about that story? I mean, was this something that you discovered looking doing the research on the Groveland Four, and you came across it and kind of put it on the back burner until later? What what made you do that story? You know, this is a really fascinating story because I I. Believe me, the idea of spending another five years of my life with Sheriff Willis McCall, it was not really appealing to me at all. Um, but I was doing a book talk in Groveland in 2012, and I was sitting there signing books at the end. It was a great you know, experience. A lot of the people who lived through it were there. And all of a sudden, this elderly gentleman comes up to my table and just sort of takes out a business card and sticks it right in my face. And all I can really see is Sheriff of Lake County. And I'm like, oh, no, who's this guy? You know, They found me. <laughs> yeah. And... He, he pulled me aside. He goes, you know, you got your book right because I was one of Willis McCall's deputies and I remember all that stuff. And he was, you know, telling me, he goes, but there's another story that, you know, no one's ever written about because it involves you know, more powerful people and it's, um, it, it, nobody will talk about it. It's very delicate, but it happened about 10 years afterwards. And he, and he basically said, we framed a kid for a rape that he didn't commit. And, and he started telling me about it. And I started filing records requests and I was like, I can't believe this is a true story. And it's in Lake County again, like eight or nine years after the Groveland story. And then I started looking into it and I'm like, all right, I'm in, this is a book. I thought maybe it might be an article. I could do like a revisit, like this is a book. I, I got so into it and there's another five years of my life, but I don't <laughs> regret it at all. It was, it's been such a journey. Well, I'm glad you don't. And I, I got to thank you, you know, for you know writing these two books, obviously not flattering parts of Florida's history, but important for us to reveal the truths of those cases. And I would encourage people to read both your books. Uh, I've read both and, and they're both really, really fantastic. Uh, Gilbert, thanks for thanks for being with us today. And more importantly, you know, thanks for all the work you've done to uh, to achieve justice for the Groveland Four. Yeah, and I'm, I'm thanking you, too. I really do appreciate all your efforts and the, the attention that you brought to this case. So thank you. 